Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You really could see in 10 years down the line, we are able to just fully connect and be in the office and be with our friends with the headset on. With holograms appearing in our living room is not a crazy idea. And that's all built off of us logging in still to our Facebook accounts. Joanna Stern, Wall Street Journal tech guru. Hours for the hour. Stay with us. Subscribe to Full Disclosure on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com, on NPR One and on Spotify. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from New York, it's a pleasure to finally have you on, Joanna Stern, Senior Personal Technology Columnist and all-around video genius at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, You've been an award-winning journalist. You spent the better part of two decades, your bias at covering gadgets and apps and helping people make smarter tech decisions. You received the 2016 Loeb Award in video for your hilarious, I always I always catch them there, can't miss the informative short films, including one I believe you did with Rupert Murdoch in the News Corp elevator? Uh, there was one. There was one. Many, you really are a fan. Many, many ages ago with an Apple Watch review, I pretended, I will not say it was an authentic run-in, I pretended to run into him and he uh, grabbed my Apple Watch. Oh my goodness. Does he even wear, does he even use a smartphone? I mean, it's alleged that he has a flip phone still or that he's notoriously technology. I don't want to get you fired or anything, but that's the lore. Well, I mean, <laughs> you'd be pretty lucky if Rupert Murdoch listened to your podcast, I'd have to say. That's a good point. I'd be pretty um, lucky if my mother listened to my podcast. But anyway, leave that leave that aside. Thank you for joining us. And you're joining us. Let me just timestamp it for anyone. At a parlous time with this, with this attempted coup. In Washington, D.C., I can't believe I'm saying it, but it's actually germane to this conversation and that anything that happens nowadays, the everything will be televised because everybody is carrying a powerful recorder, camcorder, camera right in your pockets. I mean, you saw that old Radio Shack ad with that guy holding a camcorder and everything, and it's now consolidated into the smartphone. Just kind of what are your thoughts on this being just meticulously recorded for posterity? I have so many thoughts about when something like this happens and the role of technology. You know, in fact, I, I just tweeted, and maybe the tweet wasn't you know sort of well crafted, but the the summary of it was is that you know, I, it's days like this where I just feel like mobile technology and the rise it gave to social media apps is one of the worst things to happen in our world because you look at these protesters, uh, if you want to call them that, I don't know what what to call them, and you know that this was orchestrated through one of the many online social media tools, a Facebook, a Twitter. We don't know, you know, which one right now. Uh, we know it was instigated uh, by our our president and and others telling people to get out there. And so this is this is the uh, you know you can't blame one single thing, but it was certainly a tool. It's a tool, and so you can't. Just as, as you're saying, you know, everyone's got this tool in their pocket to, have, to film everything that happens. Sometimes that's great. Sometimes that's horrible. Hmm. Right. And that's the and that's the double edged sword of technology and smartphones. And I think what we've really learned over the last almost decade, less than that, right, was first part of the decade was uh, really so much excitement about these new devices. And then we started to realize what the consequences are. And there's this parallel headline, and I know you don't cover markets, but it's always kind of ancillary to the stories that the Dow reaches a record close. Uh, The Nasdaq did drop as protests escalate at U.S. Capitol. And I think that's a segue into, you know, some of the most amazing performers in this market during the pandemic. If I had kind of scripted 
the year 2020 for you. Big tech. I mean, big tech really mm-hmm. brought it. If you think about Tesla, if you think about Zoom, if you think about Amazon, how pervasive they are in our lives and how indispensable, if you know, if they were too big to fail at the very beginning, they just became true behemoths at the very end that that even as many people I'm sure approached you that that things were that were supposed to happen seismic shifts over three, four, five years suddenly happened in less than twelve months. And I've loved actually covering that from a personal tech perspective because it has accelerated how so many of us use our own devices. And then yes, from a macro level, it's crazy, right? Like the, from a societal and uh, as you're saying, even business, like it, mm. it, it's nuts what happened. Um, and I always try to take it, take things and look at the lens of how are we using our technology and what's that mean for for the world, but also how do we help ourselves and understand all of this? Sort of just try to come at that lens. Um, but yeah, I mean, what a, what a year with the pandemic and the political unrest and, you know, even, even with some of the racial injustice and, and some of those events. And I think, you know, you, you kicked this off talking about the, you know, we've all got camcorders in our pockets and that's one place where you just, I I did a piece in June on the, the people, the bystanders who, Mm -hmm. who have witnessed some of this racial injustice and police brutality and, you know, they're, it's it's not even second nature anymore, right? It's instinct to just take out our phones and record something that's good or bad. And what those videos have done and what those have done to change the tide of history. The piece I did in June actually was like looking a little bit at the technical side because when people first started recording these things, you couldn't really make out what was happening, right? Versus what happened back in June with George Floyd. This was recorded on a brand new iPhone. It was so crystal clear what was happening and and you couldn't ignore the technology at the center of that story. And you compare that in comparison to the Rodney King riots, right? And Mm -hmm. the Rodney King footage, which was so grainy. Or you think back to Tiananmen, if you think back to various disturbances where the footage was so elusive, you're correct. I mean, the revolution, the disruption, everything will be uh, televised right now. I, I mean, I joke with friends from high school. I couldn't get my butt kicked in high school. No one can get their butt kicked in private anymore. Everybody's filming everything. Everybody pulls out a smartphone. Everything ends up on on Insta or Snapchat. You know, with the generational divide. Um, so there's suddenly this this uh, this surveillance state by default by dint of everybody having one of these. Absolutely. And they're only getting better and they're only going to get more pervasive and they're only going to get uh, more ubiquitous around us, which is going to be, you know, I guess, exciting, but also scary. I think today I come at it from a little bit of a different lens. If we talk tomorrow or if we had talked yesterday, I would probably be a lot more optimistic. Well, Joanna, take me back to the inception of the pandemic, because I always, you know, I I, I geek out with my tech friends on Zoom, it it really came out of nowhere. It's it's become uh, 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 you know synonymous with just work from home and teleconferencing with people. Right now, they're like, "Do you want to get on the phone or do you want to Zoom?" Why did Zoom suddenly come out of nowhere when we were all either using FaceTime or Skype or even WhatsApp or one of the Facebook properties, WhatsApp or Messenger? Why did we suddenly all know that you know we could gravitate to something that I had never heard of, frankly, before that? I want to say boxes, like just simple box layout of having people's face in a grid or your faces in a grid was something that hadn't, I mean, you could, you had it on Google Hangouts, but Google right. Hangouts wasn't as like pervasive in the sense of like, 
not everyone in your your corporate um, you know, that you would work with in business was using Google as their platform. Uh, Zoom has the had more of a sort of cross platform. It was more, uh, I guess, easy for for companies to say, okay, you can send out this link and anyone can join this video chat. It really seemed like that at the beginning of the pandemic. It seems like these like small features that Zoom had that you know, changing backgrounds. Being able to adjust to the 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 beauty filter on your face, the the grid layout, and it sort of just went viral, right? People were like, "You can do this on Zoom." You can, you know, everyone was first changing their backgrounds, and people were like, "You can do this on Zoom. Get on a Zoom. Let's all have drinks and uh, uh, clown happy hour and whatever <laughs> else you were, people were doing in front of their Zooms," and it, it just took off. And, and I honestly, I have to say too, like I had used Zoom for some sort of like work meetings or something like that, but never would have thought like, oh, I'm going to tell my mom to get on Zoom with my son, right? Like FaceTime is always the thing we always did with them, uh, you know, going back three three years now that since I've had a, had a, a my son. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, now we still use FaceTime for that kind of stuff, but Zoom is like, you know, it's part of the vernacular. It's like, oh, everyone just get on Zoom. Yeah, but you know what? Skype was part of vernacular. And this this gets into the conversation of look who owns Skype, Microsoft, which understands the enterprise, supposedly. Look who uh, owns, you know, FaceTime. And yes, that is an Apple to Apple product, but iPhones are fairly ubiquitous. I mean, look who owns uh, WhatsApp and Messenger. It's, it's Facebook. Everybody had these on their smartphones, and I'm still struck that a kind of a player a third party out of nowhere um, just came in and, and and drank that milkshake. Yeah. I mean, I haven't like written specifically about the like Zoom rise. I mean, I've done a number of stories on video calling tips and how to work, you know, get your whole setup to look good and how to make your whole work from home setup look and work well. But, you know, I think with the Zoom thing, it just sort of, I mean, maybe it is what you're saying. Like it, it's like they're kind of the Switzerland, like they weren't <laughs> a- affiliated with a Facebook and a Google or an Apple. And so people just were like, oh, you can use this no matter what device you're on. Um, though all those other, I mean, other than FaceTime, you know, all the others really uh, provide that sort of cross-platform functionality. Skype is an interesting one. I mean, and funny, I got my start in my career uh, out of college, I worked, I wa- wanted to go into public relations. I mean, I, mm. I thought I wanted to go into journalism and it was actually quite hard at that time to like find a good journalism job. Of and I was like, okay, I'll go into public relations. My, my mom ran a public relations company and I ended up at a tech public relations company and I was, I was working on the Skype client. And that's how actually I, you know, I, I got my start into like really being interested in tech because I was reading all the tech press, the early days of tech press. I was reading TechCrunch and GigaOM and all the all the blogs that were starting up in Gadget and and we were trying to get people to cover Skype. And Skype was basically the same as it is now. I mean, that's the thing. Like it's just was it was a video calling platform and people didn't really want a video call then. So there was a big push to get people to use Skype because it was cheap calling, cheap international calling. You know, you would it wasn't really something you'd want to do on your cell phone or or even like a landline at that time. Right. And Skype just, you know, they were always ahead. They always had multi like I mean, not always, but like then they very quickly had multi-party. You could add number of callers. And people just like didn't remember Skype. I mean, people knew it and people still know the name, but 
I, you know, if you ask people like, oh, do you have Skype on your phone? You know, the majority of people don't. So it's so interesting in that Microsoft owns Skype and LinkedIn. And these are things that everybody really seemed to use. I mean, if you talk about a foot in the door for enterprise or something where, you know, if you're, if you're talking about business, chances are somebody has a LinkedIn profile and chances are they would have a Skype thing. So it's striking to me that that was kind of an opportunity that, uh, as you're right, a, a Switzerland, a, a total you know, player out of left field. And then what about this this Shopify? Have you heard of it in Canada? I have heard of it. I ha- can't say that I, I've really covered it or I really understand yet the full appeal, but more I understand that like you know, people are using it as the infrastructure for their business and, and um, seems to be sort of taking off. And, and now all the other companies are trying to aim at it, Amazon specifically. And to what extent do people fangirl, fanboy you on Tesla? It's kind of the most talked about, you know, company of our time. Suddenly out of nowhere this year, in this pandemic year, they get added to the S&P 500. There's this quantum leap, like 500,000 vehicles shipped, battery technology, years ahead of other players. And snap your fingers, in this economic and public health crisis, it is the most valuable car maker on the planet. Um, do you do you often get asked like when are you going to buy? When are you going to make that leap? When are you going to take that leap? What is your interest in it? How how much of a role does it play in your life? Well, I actually should ask you how should I cover Tesla from like from a personal technology perspective? And you and you, I kind of cover the gamut of of what I cover uh, like in terms of everything from phones to apps to I just did a big project on digital legacy. Like nothing really. I say you know to my editors I'm like there's nothing I shouldn't be able to not cover because tech and personal tech invades every part of society and and the tech industry. But I sort of come at it as like, what's the product? How does it impact you? How do you think about, how do we think about like explaining that in, in a, in a bigger way to people? And with Tesla, it's always been like their car company or, you know, they're kind of a car company, they're a tech company. What are they? And now they're sort of like one of the most important, you know, it, and for people who own Tesla, like people will say, like this is the best gadget I own, but I don't really know how I should cover it. Well, doesn't that remind you of people, you know, initially with their with their iPhones in two thousand seven and two thousand eight that they maybe overlooked? I know you were much younger back then, but they overlooked the fact that the AT and T network was crappy. There's so much product lust. There's so much passion for the product that it does seem like it's one of those quantum leap tech innovations. I would think of this as a technology company first and foremost. I mean, it ceases to be that it it has far fewer parts than your internal combustion car. If we're talking about charging, you know, it's, uh, you know, you're you're leasing the vehicle, you're talking about uh, gains in battery technology and functionality. Um, Isn't there a big part of you that suddenly feels like you are the most equipped person at the newspaper to cover Tesla from a product perspective? Because Electronic vehicles are new products that are going to disrupt something that we've now known for a hundred years. Certainly, and I, I guess I have to just think about what is, where can I enter the space and uh, <laughs> and give some useful advice, and uh, I think also come in and, and and help people understand why this is much more than just a car. But yeah, I mean, look, I I would. I've been eyeing one of the Teslas. I am stuck in a lease right now with mm. a with a gas guzzler. I have to admit, um, mostly because I went for a safety. I went for a Volvo. You know, you had sure. your first kid, you get you a Volvo. It's how it goes. Um, and I went I Subaru. I hear you. I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I lo- I love the Volvo, but I hate how much gas I have to put in that thing. Sure. And um, yeah, I think I've got to make a change. Got to make a change. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Joanna Stern. She's senior personal technology columnist and video celebrity at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you received the 2016 Loeb Award in video for your... I, I mean, again, you have to go on on Joanna's Twitter timeline and follow any video thing she does. I remember you... What was what was one you did like last year where you, you were in, in a capsule in a bubble or you tried to self-isolate or something? I was like, wow. How do you yes. turn these around? Yeah, well, that one was, you know, Samsung released a foldable phone that was really not meant for using in the world. Uh, you know, if you got a speck of dust in it or if your fingernail sort of grazed the screen the wrong way, it could break the phone. And so it sort of felt like, you know, this thing is meant to be used in a bubble. And so I asked my producer, go find a bubble. And he found one and we went. So talk me through that. How do you scramble the jets to do something like this? Because now you're a video producer as well. And this historically was not the province of the newspaper, even the online version of it. I'm thinking back to all things digital and, and Walter Mossberg. That'd be very straightforward. He'd hold up the handset and he, you know, these are the 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 rubber grips on the phone. I like them. It was very straightforward. It's like sometimes he even did them out of his laundry room or something. But you're doing these like quibby caliber Hollywood productions. And that's that's possible and, and economic in this environment? I think that's one of the beauties of working at the Wall Street Journal. But I, I will say a couple of things. One, Walt is a mentor to me. And uh, when I took the job, I spoke with him about it. And I, I he was so great. And it's always he's such a, uh, as we say, mensch. A mensch. He's just a, a, you know, a wonderful guy. And I said, you know, I want to do some things some di- differently. And when I was applying for the job, I was, the, the, the editor at the time who hired me, his name is Jonathan Krim. He's not with the journal anymore. He said, I want you to focus on video. You seem to be really interested in video. I think video is going places. Our video department here isn't exactly that out of the box. Why don't you, why don't you just come and try it here? And I was like, okay, you know, I, I asked for what I needed in terms of resources. They, they were able to get it and, and I was off to the races and I was given like you know, just such a open field to, to experiment. And my hope there was just to make tech interesting and fun, personal tech interesting and fun, and be able to bring a different side of myself and a side of the paper that I uh, just felt like wasn't wasn't really there. And I've taken that in a lot of different directions. I, mean, I think a lot of people know me for some of these really fun concept videos. You know, I've done everything from review a phone uh, fully underwater. That was the Galaxy Note many years ago. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. Um, I've done the bubble. I've done, you know, I reviewed the iPhone, the 5G iPhone alone at a stadium a couple of months ago at the MetLife Stadium here in New Jersey. I, you know, I've, I've done some crazy things, but I've also, you know, tried to broaden that at the journal and really bring uh, bring my creativity along with some of the journalism that we do, some of the deeper journalism. So last year I led a series on Amazon. We did it uh, two years ago mm-hmm. now and was actually em- uh, nominated for two Emmys. And, um, you know, just thinking a little bit about how do we how do we explore the size and power of Amazon in a video series? What are the things that we can visually show that our competitors aren't doing? Um, and then more recently, I actually ended up working on a short form documentary on uh, a more serious topic on, on digital legacy and what happens to ourselves or our, our memories and our stories after we die and how can they continue online. So yeah, the journal's just been amazing and giving me sort of the runway to do these things. 
So from a hardware perspective, I got to ask, are you are you chiefly using smartphones to film these? I mean, what kind of resources do you have to marshal? I understand that everything is now done in the cloud. It's not like we're carrying around video cassettes or or putting this stuff on DVDs or, or big drives. Uh, everything is kind of hardware light and um, – you can get unbelievable resolution, whatever it is, 4K on the even even the two-year-old uh, smartphones that you're getting out of of Android or Apple. That it's easier than ever for a hobbyist or a small-time person or a person in high school to make something, as you see in the Apple ads, kind of look Hollywood caliber. Yeah, so we don't. I mean, we don't shoot with iPhones. We shoot with some some really nice Sony gear, uh, FS5, FS7 cameras um you're right they're digital and we we shoot and we capture on sd cards and um i don't actually i'm not a i don't consider myself a director of photography i'm not a a, a cinematographer i my one of my producers is wonderful at that his, his name is kenny wasis hired him just to help me up my production game and and make the videos look great and and up the creativity of them um for other series like this amazon one we i mean we shot some of we had one whole episode in bangladesh we had to hire people there. We uh, had another, you know, we had other parts of that here in the US. We had other parts of that over over in the UK. So um, sort of use a network of, of freelancers and and definitely I'm not shooting on my own. I mean, we've shot some stuff with iPhones. I mean, in the early part of the pandemic, because I was, we were all in lockdown, we right. weren't shooting at all. I shot everything on my iPhone. I, I do have a good Sony camera and I just had no patience for it. I was like, <laughs> this iPhone with the Filmic app installed was just perfect for me. And I would send the, the footage to um, my producer or another editor and we'd be off to the races. So yeah, you, you mean, there's so many options and that's the beautiful thing. I mean, I watch so much TikTok. Are you watching TikTok? Are you, oh, yes. Are you down the, the holes <laughs> of TikTok? I mean, it's... I'm near that divide, yeah. I mean, I, I really like so much more of my time I'm watching just... It's not crappy. It's not crappy cell phone video anymore. But I, so much of my time I'm watching, you know, footage on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter that's shot with an iPhone, probably also edited very nicely sometimes with an iPhone or, or some other uh, software. And it's kind of amazing. I mean, it's just like, I, I really don't think also a lot of people see the difference anymore. Well, illustrate some of your work from home learning curve for me, if you will. Like some of the things that you realized, hacks that are possible. We clearly all had to learn on the fly. As I said, you know, when, when, when March struck and the order hit and the lockdowns happened, especially in, you in New York, um, you had to suddenly figure out how to do it faster, cheapest, kind of, you know, in your case, filing stories, the video footage, what's barely good enough versus the, you know, the perfect standard of the Sony cam. Tell us about what you learned along the way. Uh, I learned that you have to buy so much stuff. Mm. <laughs> it's just like it's funny like i i of all people should have all this gear right i'm always testing stuff or i've over the years accumulated stuff that i've bought for projects and i had a lot of it here but i mean i'm looking around my home office now like this good mic i had i you know i i didn't have that i bought that i didn't have this uh nicer monitor i didn't have these better headphones i all of this stuff I had okay stuff, and this stuff is probably okay, you know, comparably to comparable to some studio quality stuff that other people have. But yeah, I had to just bring it all home. And it's funny, like pre-pandemic, I used to work from home when I first started the journal. I worked from home a little bit more, and then at some point, I I took sort of more of a leadership role in the at the journal in the video department, and I started going into the office every day. Mm -hmm. 
And after that, I just found it very hard to sort of work in two places. So I would go to the office and I'd spend a lot of time in the office and I have a, a you know, a, a nice little office there that has all my stuff there. And I you know, was, would, people just knew me to be in there till, you know, from some midday point in the day to like all night. Um, and so it was, it was difficult for me to not be able to just be there and be able to go to somebody's desk and ask them to to do something or to you know even on the video edits to not be able to go over to a producer's desk and say oh let me let me see where the cut is at right now let's see what the edit's looking like or you know let's move that shot here move this shot here that's so hard to do remotely and we figured out a lot of ways in in between so yeah i think it's like my story's like anyone else's you just adjust and you find the, the right things what do you think about, I don't know if you, you take some some weekend time or late evening time to scroll through Rockefeller Center, where I guess your office is. I also was there when I was at Business Week. It's all such a ghost town right now. When you look around you at at the, the millions and millions of square feet of just idled office space, and a lot of companies on the fence about wholeheartedly returning, as you know, many of the companies you cover in Silicon Valley are giving their employees lots of runway in terms of when they want them back in the office, if ever. I really think it's going to look different for so much of New York. I really do. I mean, I've gone a couple of times now back to the office to go record something in higher quality or go shoot something in, in New York or um, just grab something. And it's just crazy. I mean, Midtown is a ghost town. The lunchtime at Midtown, you, I mean, it's it's sad. And, it, and so, I mean, I go to the local coffee shop that I used to go to every afternoon. We'd always go out with one, on, uh, you know, one of somebody else I'd work with or, you know, say, oh, let's go meet for coffee at the at the place on 46th and uh, 7th or whatever it is. Hmm. And I went by there and it's just like nobody, nobody's there. You know, so when I go now, I'm like, I'm going to have 15 coffees. Uh, you know, you, you feel <laughs> so sad. You feel so guilty that um, this, this, this has happened. I mean, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I, even when I see it coming back, I don't see everyone going back. Mm. Joanna, when I looked at the piece that you put out at the beginning of the year, tech that will change your life in 2021, you mentioned something that I think is increasingly hitting a nerve. Uh, let me just read the, the the headline here. New ways to work, exercise, see the doctor, watch movies and sanitize. Every surface in sight will continue to proliferate. So will monthly subscription fees. Talk to me, if you will, about this incipient, more than incipient. It's kind of full blown right now. Uh, Login fatigue, right? I mean, we have not just the Spotify login, not just you know your iCloud login if you're on the Apple system, but um, Amazon wants you to be a member of Prime and Prime Video. Mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to watch Tehran so badly, and and Apple needs to upsell me to Apple TV Plus. Uh, my brother pays for Netflix and shares the password with me. The kids want to see Disney Plus. Um, you have all of these these ancillary things like Discovery and Peacock and HBO Max. Do you ever wonder kind of how much is enough? It seems like they're reassembling the cable dial. It's funny. Every I wrote a piece about this like maybe it was a year ago, two years ago, and I got so chewed at for it because, of course, I work for a subscription publication and my salary is mostly covered by the people who subscribe to read uh, the Wall Street Journal. Um, so – yeah, I guess it's a little hypocritical to, for me to say to people, hey, you know, cancel your subscriptions, go go and prune your subscription list. Mm. But that's really what our, our lives have to be like that. That was a, the piece I wrote, I think, two years ago, just saying, like, every year you need to put it on your calendar. This is subscription clean out day. And you go through your list and you take off the ones you don't use or you go to them and you try to figure out, are you really using Are you really paying for the right subscription? 
I think the big thing that's going to happen this year, and you've probably seen it already, I mean, you said your brother pays for Netflix, which is a very clever trick, um, is that those subscription costs are going to go up. Like Netflix is constantly raising its price, the monthly price. And this was, I believe it was back in December or November, they raised the price of the the most popular plan, which is the lowest end plan by a dollar. Disney Plus is going to do it in March. They're going up a dollar. That's only going to keep happening. It's going to happen so much more, especially as we get into these, like we, they get us in, they get us in low and then they say, okay, we've got this recurring revenue. We're going to add more Hmm. features. People will think we're getting, they're getting more and they are getting more. It's not fair to say they're not getting more. That costs more. We're going to up it. And that's where I think, you know, that's where that, that process of you got to keep looking at these things. And that's the new way of life for us is we've just got to keep looking at what we're paying for and. It's it's so easy to forget about it. I mean, I think one of the good things is if you subscribe through Apple, which there's a lot of debate about because what cut is Apple taking if you subscribe through them, you can at least go in your app store icon, you know, you go into your app store on your iPhone and you can see the list of subscriptions and you can easily press cancel. It's one of the beauties of subscribing through Apple. As many people know, if you don't do that, then you're going to be stuck with the company and you're going through loads and loads of probably customer service levels to say, I want out of this, I want out of that, as Wall Street Journal readers tell me all the time, they can't cancel their subscription. So it's a it's a long shot when you see a company like Disney, whose business was truly, truly disrupted during the pandemic. I mean, you talk about theme parks, big cash flow generator just shut down overnight, people not going to the movie theater. Uh, you know, ABC and ESPN. ESPN doesn't have live sports uh, in attendance. Uh, so they're trying to hit up the cable companies for this. And yet Disney Plus signups with The Mandalorian and everything else going on. And, and you know, you're a parent now and the kids are are very desperate for their Disney Plus and, and Pixar and, and the old classics and everything. And that company hits an all-time high. It's, it's valuation in a year that its business was truly, truly disrupted. I think it's, it's kind of the paradox of this arms race for for, for streaming accounts. Totally. I think HBO is going to be another winner here. I mean, HBO Max seems to have gone full full throttle at this, putting, you know, the, I didn't, did you watch Wonder Woman? No, I did not. I didn't either. I think we were maybe the only people. Good thing we're on this podcast together. <laughs> it seemed like everyone watched it on Christmas. What is the wisdom of that? I always wondered when HBO shelled out the big bucks, because again, I don't want to stamp this, but the big folly of my age when I was a journalist was, uh, you know, AOL Time Warner, and that was the marriage of content and distribution and everything, and that was a disaster, and that was unwound within three years of 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 just this awful Y two K decision. But now we know that AT and T, the the wireless giant um, that also owns Directv, it goes out and takes out a ton of debt and shells out all this money for Warner and HBO, and it's pleading with people now to please. You know, pay for HBO Max after we've paid for Netflix, after we paid for Disney Plus. It's like it's the it's the other kid with his hand up at the in the back of the classroom saying, "Oh, me, 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 pick me." Um, and I I I always wondered, Joanna, that wasn't this I, like what was the wisdom in there a, a wireless company buying uh, a, a film studio or a content super shop? Was it going to make your wireless plan more sticky? I think it's to own it all. I mean, if you look at just the trend. What we're seeing in uh, tech media is 
to own it all, to have to have everything in your backyard, really. And I know you talked about this. On, I listened to your podcast you had with Kara Swisher a couple months ago. And when you look at the tech companies, they've gotten into media. When you look at the wireless giants, they've gotten into media and to tech. And so everyone sort of wants to have one piece of have the whole pie, really. Um, in this, in the sense of you know, AT and T, I think it is owning that all. I mean, you've got a subscriber base that is got powerful computers that that you sell them powerful computers, you sell them smartphones that unlocks a lot of a lot of tools that unlocks a lot of business. Are you convinced that Apple is a uh, a, a true kind of wholehearted content shop. I talked about Tehran, which we're now streaming. It's, it has us on the edge of our seat. This this uh, this this cliffhanger series about Mossad, you know, what in is that Iran. On? It's so I good. I Apple know. Apple TV Plus, which oh, was another is. login okay. that I had to go oh, in I and pay get for this that week. Too. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I pay for that too. But that's like multi homing, as they say. Like, how many credit cards do you want to carry in your wallet? So. Um, do you uh, do you believe that like Apple is out there? They have some big names, Jennifer Aniston, other people that they signed up in this. There's a Tom Hanks film on it. It seems like every it's it, the era of the kind of the tech media mega conglomerate is back after a lot of these players broke themselves up into small pieces uh, last decade or the decade before. Okay, first thing, the morning show on Apple TV Plus is actually great. I will mm. say it's like one of the best streaming shows I've watched. I know that's going to be a very, might be the most controversial thing I say on your podcast, but <laughs> it's very good. And it's the reason I started really subscribing to Apple Plus, even though, you know, I had gotten the free year free or whatever, I'm, I would, I would pay for it. I would pay for it for the, for the morning show. But what I guess is what I should have done is that stop paying for it. And then now like you tell me Tehran is good and start paying for Apple TV Plus again for this, you know, month or two that well, I Well, it's not it's it. not at the very least it's not a massive annoyance for you that you have to go out when somebody recommends something kind of on an esoteric network like oh I got to I got to remember to sign up for that and I got to remember to to get out of it when I'm done binging that thing. I mean, it's so dispersed that you're wondering at some point it's all going to have to be curated for us and collected for us again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean but back to your question about Apple, I do think Apple's a content company. And mm. I, I and the latest example I'm seeing is I've been working out with Apple Fitness Plus. Have you tried that? No, tell me about it. And you know the production quality, it's you know, it's a Peloton wannabe um without the without the bike hardware or the treadmill hardware to pair with it though. You know, I'm going to put out there I, I think the big tech companies are going to start to make workout gear or workout hardware. I think it's it's not a crazy idea. Mm. But what they do is you know, basically just uh, highly produced workout classes from biking to, uh, stretching to, to weight lifts. I've done it. I've done the weightlifting and the, the, the mindful cool downs they're called. It's really just stretching with a little bit of meditation at the end. And they're really well produced. They pair with your, with your Apple watch. So you, if you don't have an Apple watch, you can't even subscribe. So that's like, you know, just think about the, the level of the track sure. on that side, right? Like you've got to have an iPhone because the Apple Watch doesn't work without the iPhone. And then you've got to have the Apple Watch to have Fitness Plus. So you're so deep into Apple's trap, you're basically unable to ever get out. And then they have these great classes and, and and you know, they're they're highly produced and Apple's making them. They're making them in LA. So, and then they're making the, the TV Plus stuff. And yeah, 100% they're a content company. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Joanna Stern, Senior Personal Technology Columnist and Video Content All Things Guru at The Wall Street Journal. Joanna, are you a, are you a, a self-declared cord cutter? I'm not. So you still have the cable package and everything? Is it just out of laziness or? 
I guess so. My wife really likes to watch some of the cable channels like Bravo and mm-hmm. CNN and really just Bravo. Um, and we just never gave it up. And it's we have, it's not too it's like it would be bundled with the Internet service. And like if I broke it down, I'd probably end up paying for like a sling or some other sort of other channel based service. So I've just stuck with it. I, I should look at it this year. I'm, I'm, this might be the year. So I always wondered, I mean, if you live in a doorman building, you must be the most annoying tenant because you get all of this unsolicited swag, right? All these companies trying to send you the next smartphone, the next, you know, combination podcast mic and, and mixer. Uh, what do you do? How do you even, I compare it, you know, when I used to, I, I met Walt Mossberg once, I said it must be like sipping from a fire hydrant, all the product solicitations you get. Well, the good news is, is well, first of all, I don't live in a doorman building anymore. I used to, and for sure, the doorman was very used to be very annoyed with me because I'd bring down, you know, <laughs> of course, it wasn't even the receiving; it was the sending out. So, of course, everything sure. I get, I send back. But I do that in like big waves. So, at the end of usually every quarter or something, I I sit down and you know, back when the office, I'd have some assistance with it. I'd say, let's pack up all of these things and get it out the door. But when I was living in the doorman building, I was like constantly bringing like down 15 packages at a time. And they're like, what's this? And I'm like, FedEx is going to pick all this up. And like, well, where should we put it? I'm like, I don't know. It's not my job. Um, so, but now I live in a townhouse and uh, I guess the FedEx guy's just as annoyed with me. But um, the you know, yes, this has been the big problem of the pandemic. I want to say a big problem. It's really a first world problem for any tech reviewer. But you don't want to give out your home address because then people will start sending you things unsolicited. So I've been trying to keep that very narrow. Um, but now CES is coming and lots of companies, oh, can we send you this you know, care package for CES? It's like, no, you cannot. Please don't don't send me anything. So I try to stay as far off of those lists and because uh, it's actually quite annoying. You know, I don't want to get sure. stuff that, first of all, I, I, I always return it. I'm going to have to return it. And if I'm not going to have time to test it, then it just sits here. And that's a waste of shipping. And, you know, it's not good for the environment. I'm saving the environment one box at a time, really. I know you're in the market for an extended warranty for your Volvo, but I digress. I digress. <laughs> I was struck by the video piece that you did because I've been thinking about VR all of 2020 and continuing to the present now that the NBA season is back without fans, largely. The future of your office is in a VR headset, virtual reality headset. And I love the avatar that you created. I, I, everybody should go and check this out on the Wall Street Journal's uh, website. You can Google it, September 28th, 2020. Um, why isn't that technology there? I thought Facebook was a big player in VR technology. We, shouldn't have been, we should have been able, just like you could flick on the switch with Zoom in the spring of 2020, you should be able to flick on a switch with any sports event and be in attendance as long as you had the hardware at home. But nobody seemed to have that. Yeah, and... Even even though I have it here, it is hard to get people to like want to put on the headset or even people I know who have the headset. Like, oh, let's go hang out in in VR. And I should maybe backtrack a little bit and explain that this piece that I talked about did was where I talked about that you're you can recreate your office space in VR. So there are these companies. The one the main one I featured is called Spatial, which lets you customize this avatar where you just upload a photo of yourself. It can be a selfie. It can be a headshot. And it makes this weird looking avatar of you and it looks like you and you put on your headset and that's you and you go to this sort of virtual conference room right, space, right. right, is the best way to explain it. 
and you meet up with your colleagues. And I did this a couple of months into the pandemic and I was like, wow, I would take off my headset and be like, I just hung out with Adam or I just saw, saw uh, one of my colleagues. Like I would feel like I was really there with them. And So how much does that headset cost, for example? Well, the new Oculus Quest costs $300. So three hundred dollars, and then tacked onto a smartphone, right? I mean, it, no, it's, you it's don't home need it. Connected you to don't need it. So all you need is a Wi-Fi connection at home. What's the bottleneck that prevented this from being dispersed so widely uh, during the work from home scenario? And I'm not just talking about work from home. I'm talking about attending concerts that you otherwise wouldn't be able to attend. Uh, I wanted to see the NBA finals in person. I wanted to attend the Lakers game when we had these bizarre cardboard and LCD cutouts in the stands. But even with a player like Facebook owning a lot of this technology and IP, nobody was ready to unleash it on us. And that's the biggest question, right? Because the price hurdle stopped being there. I mean, it stopped this this holiday season. And, and it looks like, I mean, Facebook hasn't announced numbers, but based on app downloads, it was, the Oculus Quest app was like one of the most downloaded apps after Christmas. Um, and, you know, just hearing from, from Facebook's head of AR and VR, it's a very, you know, they've said they've had the best quarter and, and time ever for wow. VR. So certainly they're selling more of them, but is it like a home... Like it, it does do all your friends have VR headsets? No, but many more of them do. Like I was hanging out with a one of the dads from my son's class, and he was like, "Yeah, no, I I love working out in VR." And I was like, "Oh, tell me about your." He's like, "I do it every day. I work out in VR." And I was like, "He said I started doing it during the pandemic." So more and more people are doing it. I don't. You know, is this one of those moments where the pandemic? happens, we get used to something and then we all start going back to the office or creating our new lives, which are a hybrid, I think, of being in the office and being at home. And we sort of give it up, possibly. But I do think a lot of it will stick around for when those AR glasses come from these companies and that timing is right. And then these things just carry over to that. Yeah, you mentioned Facebook, which owns the Oculus technology, it was an acquisition that's kind of forgotten now that the company is so massive. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of Facebook, his net worth is north of $100 billion. He's the fourth richest person on the planet, the only person under 40 on the Forbes list of the 20 richest people. Joanna, what is, what is Facebook's goal in life at this point? I mean, it draws so much controversy over its role in disinformation, um, the way it cross-tracks you from Instagram to WhatsApp to Messenger, how ubiquitous it is. There seems to be a, a congressional flare-up every two or three months. One wonders, why don't they just leave well enough or bad enough alone? I mean, uh, Bill Gates at this point left Microsoft and, and recreated his reputation, became philanthropic. What is Facebook looking to mine from us now? I think it's this next future platform. I mean, when you look at, and I think the most exciting stuff happening at Facebook is in that AR and VR division, which is run by uh, Andrew Bosworth, who was is one of an old, you know, one of Mark Zuckerberg's in inner crew and and uh, has run different parts of Facebook. And I think that the interesting thing they're trying to do there is build like what's the next future of social media? What's the next future thing that overlays what they've already built? And AR and VR seems to be a huge part of that and they're and they're developing things that you really could see in 10 years down the line, we are able to just fully connect and be in the office and be with our friends with the headset on with holograms appearing in our living room is not a crazy idea. And that's all built off of us logging in still to our Facebook accounts, whether it be, you know, Instagram or WhatsApp or whatnot. That's just the the underlying, I would say, you know, that's sort of like the sheet that they're that they've been laying. 
where those actual platforms keep going and what kind of government scrutiny they they what ends up befalling them, I can't say. I you know I think certainly I think the one big outcome is that hopefully these companies will stop acquiring so many other companies and start there'll start to be more air in the in the room for other companies mm. and innovation to to happen. Um, that's that's at least a hope for me. Mm. And and parallel to this, how and where do you consume your news? Uh, you know, walk me through a news consumption day. It's not like you sit with the the paper, Wall Street Journal. Do you read it on a tablet with a half of a grapefruit? How do you know? I don't know. Every morning, I I walk to the mailbox. I get my Wall Street Journal and, and New York Times. No, I don't. I don't do any of that. <laughs> um, I'd like to dream that that's what I do because it feels like that's sort of what I want to return to. No, but what what is what is a good way of doing it? And how do you filter out the noise? Because you know, Twitter does do many things great, but at times it's just analysis paralysis. You're getting bombarded with things and you don't know whether to follow the hashtags. LinkedIn, there's a lot of, you know, PR centric yeah. fluff and anodyne stuff. So where do you go to kind of cut to the chase? I I rely on a couple of different just regular news apps. I mean, I definitely spend way too much time on Twitter. I'm trying to battle that. I, I definitely, I try to limit my times of the day on Twitter. I try to limit what I tweet. Sometimes I have the willpower. Sometimes I don't. I I definitely just sort of turn to the apps. I turn to, you know, I read the Wall Street Journal app. I read the New York Times app. Um, I sometimes even, you know, glance through Apple News. I stopped paying for the Apple News Plus subscription because I didn't find I was actually reading as much of what's in there. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is part of that, and I already have the subscription there. What about you? Where do you read your news? Maybe give me some tips. I mean, I read too much of it on Twitter. I feel badly that, you know, right. I. Uh, what are these aggregators? There's Google News. Apple News was very strange. And I, I run into the same problem with login fatigue right now, where I see an interesting long read and it wants me, all right, if you want to read the whole thing, you know, subscribe. Mm -hmm. There's no true option for us to kind of a la carte go out there yet and maybe buy uh, one big long piece that you want to see. It's kind of all or nothing. And there is a tremendous amount of fatigue. I mean, you pay for the journal, you pay for the Times, you pay for your local paper. What about The Economist? You know, Fortune. Everybody else is like these – it feels like this this nest full of hungry hungry chicks that is like, no, feed me, feed me, right. feed me. And, you know, I got I to gotta feed the Netflix too. You know, I got to feed the cable company and the wireless bill as well. I, I also – I've been getting bigger on newsletters. There's a couple of tech newsletters that I try to read every morning or at least skim through. There's some of the like weekly news digest newsletters that I try to, to look through. But, you know, it's, it's sort of the similar thing in, in podcast world, right? Like how, how many podcasts can you listen to? How many newsletters can you subscribe to? How many publications can you subscribe to? People hit a limit. Um, you know, I, I feel lucky to be a creator that, uh, and a, a journalist that people follow and, and will subscribe for, subscribe to and, and read. But I know that struggle too. I mean, it's hard to get everyone to watch every single one of my videos that I do. Um, you know, I'm beholden to you. Oh, but they do, eh. but they do. And what's beautiful is you just walked into my trap. Yes. And the beautiful thing is that only my mother listens to this podcast in the end, but we are we are hearing about Substack left and right and left and right and it's the ultimate vehicle of self determination for the 
uh, very proficient and popular content maker like a Joanna Stern, I have no doubt that you get unsolicited job offers from places like the New York Times, uh, the various magazines, the various billionaire-owned places <laughs> are like, oh my gosh, I love her stuff. I have to poach her. I don't want you to lose your job on my account. But what is this? What is this whole newsletter social compact thing where suddenly I'm hearing about stars decamping from major publications to become like sole proprietors? Like you're hanging up your own Joanna Stern shingle, much like Walt Mossberg did with, you know, uh, all things digital. It's really interesting, and like we've all seen these waves. I mean, I, I see it as like, is this the the next wave of the blogs? Right? Like we mm. we all sort of dabbled in blogs and blogs were just really an underlying technology. It wasn't a media platform. And so are newsletters. Newsletters is just a is a technology platform. It's just a way of disseminating information and it just happens to come to your email inbox. I think that what's happening, I mean, I, I really have so much admiration and I think of the people who have sort of left some of their, their jobs and I think they're quite brave to go at it. And I, 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 I think it's, um, it's a really good thing that people are trying. Uh, Casey Newton is a friend of mine, and he he writes a pop. Uh, well, I guess it's called the Platformer now, but used to write the popular uh, newsletter for the Verge, and he went to Substack. And you know, his mission is really just independent journalism, and he he wants to build a, a, a independent journalism that's that's funded by people that people have to pay for, and and he he and others really believe in that model. I think it's a it's it's going to be an interesting experiment to see how many people can survive on that. Joanna, in the five minutes I have left with you, I cannot resist. You have to tell me the story of your life with Twitter and finding the love of your life. A spark ignited on Twitter is the famous uh, story in the New York Times, the, the 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 marriage read from 2017. Tell me how it happened. And you know what? This is such a perfect way to end this podcast because it does remind me. And I know you know I started this podcast talking about the dangers, right? They're dangers. And, and a day like today where I feel like, God, with a smartphone, just the smartphone and the social media apps that gave rise to are just are horrible and look what it's done to the world. But there's always the good. And I think that's, you know, that I try to bring the optimism with so much of my technology coverage. And so I think this is such a great story. It's the best thing technology ever did for me. Um, I was just a young girl on the internet, searching for for love. No, I wasn't searching for love at all. <laughs> I was I was like searching it, the um, Twitter for. There was a popular show at the time on Showtime called The L Word. Mm -hmm. I had been searching for it. Uh, I saw a woman. I tweeted back to her. She said something funny about the L word. <laughs> and she messaged me, direct messaged me. At the time, no one would say she slid into my DMs. This was this was <laughs> 100 million years ago on the internet. You know, we're, yes, we're so old. Yes. And she was like, I know you. I um, And she she had a different account name. And, and so she I wouldn't have known her from her like Twitter account. She's like, I know you. I, I work in tech PR. I pitched you on so and so and such thing. And I had been at the time working at Laptop Magazine, a very small tech publication where I got my start. And I was like, oh, wow. And we just started talking from there. And we were friends at first. And then it was just a, a beautiful lesbian love story on Twitter. Shouldn't Twitter have like co-sponsored co your your uh, your 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 marriage or at least the ketubah or something? I mean, did you would that have crossed like a conflict of interest? It thing? definitely would have. <laughs> I proposed on Twitter. I mean, I... Oh. Yeah, I mean, I tried to. We were, we were, I mean, we were in Hawaii. We flew to Hawaii, and I, you know, I, I really 
I was like, I'm going to propose on Twitter and then I'm going to, she's going to get the alert and then she's going to look at that and it's gonna, she's going to be like, oh my God, is this real? That's not what happened. Like I, I tweeted it on my phone. We were on the beach and like 15 minutes later, I'm like, can you look at Twitter? Um, and, that's, <laughs> and, and like all these people had seen it on Twitter before. And so they're like, did she say yes? What happened? Um, but yeah, that was, that was the the Twitter love story. And it turns out actually lots of people had met on Twitter during that time. I think it was, you know, it was the early days. It wasn't, what was it? 2000 and must've been like 2010, 2009, maybe, you know, Twitter wasn't what it is now. I mean, certainly. I come for the news and I, I stay for the self-loathing, right? I mean, I don't know why, why I'm suddenly drawn to it. People are like, why do you tweet so much? And then there's, you know, you, you have this direct channel to, Tens of thousands of people, and that's what's so different. I mean, back in the day, someone would have to find your email or uh, 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 write you correspondence you know, at, the, at, at Mother Dow downtown, and now they can just tweet at you, for better or for worse. And I, again, bringing it full, full circle, I mean, I go to Twitter now for the, the, the blue warning labels, really. Uh, you know, mm. what, day, what is the blue warning label they're going to put on our, on our president's tweet today? Um, you know, this is a fun game I like to play in the morning. I don't know. Am I the only one that plays? Do you that? think he ultimately gets kicked off of Twitter? I mean, he's had he's 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 the most tagged big celebrity on Twitter with like 60, 70 million followers. And if you're actually incenting insurrection or sedition or something, if that's not grounds to at least get suspended, I, I wonder, especially when he's out of office, how Twitter's going to handle it. I don't want to say anything on this podcast because by the time this publishes, something might have happened. I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm this is this is a great thing to do today because it required me to spend what are we fifty minutes not looking at Twitter, not looking at anything going on on my computer, and so thank you for for doing this for me. This was really just therapy um, and a good distraction. But like, I don't know, we could open Twitter right now and they could have you know blocked out everything is ever written. I have no idea. I mean, that's probably be, that's probably me being hopeful. I, I, they probably have done nothing. Well, if you say that I am therapy, Joanna Stern, your videos have been therapy for me. I love the stuff that you do out there. I'm, I'm really proud from you. I'm kind of failing from a distance. But if I am therapy, feel free to, to Venmo me a copay or do whatever you kids do these days, Bitcoin. I will. But first I have to, I mean, from the sounds of this podcast, you're actually 200 years old. I mean, you can't be, you can't be older than... I, don't know. I am forty four. I oh, am forty four. So you're and I not sense, that old. From this, I I'm sense, getting a sense that like you're. No, I'm not going to get 400. hired by a major public. You are the future right now. Like you're a bona fide millennial. Like I've been put out to pasture. I'm email, you know, MySpace. Email hotmail, is hot are... right now. We just talked about Substack. <laughs> like everyone wants to be in your email. Email is the coolest thing. So yeah, embrace everything you've learned about email in 40 years. Well, um, thank you for embracing us. And please, please come back. Give us your Twitter deets everywhere you can be found. Everywhere on Joanna Stern, just Joanna, at Joanna Stern. That on Twitter, on uh, Instagram. I'm really trying to build my Instagram following right now. Likewise. It's not that easy. I'll post this to Instagram. Joanna Stern, senior personal technology columnist at the Wall Street Journal. And you called Walt Mossberg a, a mensch. Uh, does that make you a menstress or a macherite? I don't know. I always try to kind of throw this around, but uh, there, there isn't a... There isn't a straight up word for it. I'm not. I'm nothing close to whatever he is. Please come back. Well, I will. I will. And I, one day I'll have a podcast and you can be on there. I will, for sure. Thanks so much. Full Disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Subscribe to Full Disclosure on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. We are on NPR One and Spotify and all fine podcatchers. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. 
And a shout out to our radio listeners in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and down in Asheville, North Carolina. Holler if you'd like to pick up this show on your air. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Thank you.